millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. So this is the first episode back since we began our hiatus, and I want to thank you all so much for hanging in there while we took some time to ourselves. If you haven't heard our most recent update, Eileen has made the decision to step back from hosting. It was a tough decision, but it is the right decision for her. I have decided to continue the show, but as a solo host, And it's a major format change, I know, but I'm excited about the new direction that misconduct has taken. Another change from the pre-hiatus days is misconduct will no longer be a weekly show. Episodes will be released every other week, but they will still come out on Thursdays. Aside from that, I am excited to announce that misconduct is going to be attending the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th, 2019 in Chicago. The festival is specially designed around your desire to mingle, interact, and have casual conversations with the podcasts you listen to regularly. There will also be panel discussions and live episode recordings. Some of the registered shows are Canadian True Crime, The Vanished, Insight, True Crime Fan Club, Apex and the Abyss, and The Fall Line. So you're really not going to want to miss this. Go to the website tcpf2019.com to find more information on tickets and the hotel. Prices do go up closer to the event, so you won't want to wait. When you buy your ticket, make sure you mention misconduct on the ticket registration survey, and I'll see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Okay, with that, let's get into the episode. In the late afternoon of January 22nd, 1964, a high school senior was walking through the front door of her family's home in Oakland's upscale Crocker Heights neighborhood. It was just after 5.30 p.m., nearing the end of the family's daily routine, and Susan was arriving home right on schedule. On any other day, the family would have dinner together before winding down for the night, going to bed, and getting up to start the same routine all over again the next day. But as soon as Susan walked through the door, she knew something was terribly wrong. In the living room, she found her mother, Betty, and her older sister, Carolyn, face down on the floor, not moving. Panicked and confused, she called the operator and asked them to send the police because she believed that her mother and her sister were dead. 
the responding officers found a disturbing scene. Not only were both women dead at the scene, they had been posed in an odd fashion with their limbs hogtied. Police were eager to solve the case and bring calm to the terrified community, so they pulled every available resource to find answers, but quickly realized that this case was not going to be easy to close. How did a mother and a daughter with no known enemies fall victim to such a personal and heinous crime, and why weren't police able to solve the case? Betty Martin had been living in the Bay Area for about 25 years before her murder. She moved after graduating from Ohio State and took a position as a secretary at the Church Run Orphanage for Girls in Oakland. Before moving west, Betty got her bachelor's degree in institutional management, and she was the youngest of several children. Betty was always very active in her church, and it was at First United Presbyterian Church of Oakland that she met her husband, Frank, while singing in the choir. Frank Martin was an osteopathic physician with his own practice in downtown Oakland. Frank had gotten his education in Montana before moving to Los Angeles for medical school, and he started his practice in 1940. Frank and Betty were married in 1943 on the grounds of the orphanage where Betty worked. They moved into a home near downtown Oakland in the Adams Point neighborhood, and it was here that they started their life together. Both Betty and Frank were very involved with their church. Besides Betty working for the church-run orphanage, she held office at the Bay Area Presbyterian Society and sat on the Council of Church Women. Meanwhile, Frank continued to sing in the choir. When the Martins decided to start a family, they moved to a new home in a new neighborhood in the Oakland Hills. Contrasting with their old neighborhood, their new neighborhood, Crocker Heights, was much more of a quiet suburb compared to the busier Adams Point. Crocker Heights is an affluent neighborhood in Oakland, bordered by Piedmont. It was built up in the 1920s, with several architects coming into the neighborhood to design the Spanish-style and Art Deco homes that came to define the style of the neighborhood. Back then and today, if you drive down the winding streets, you will see large, sprawling homes and perfectly landscaped yards. At the time of these crimes, it was noted that these affluent homes went from anywhere from thirty dollars to $45,000. People familiar with Bay Area housing prices' jaws may drop at that number, considering today these houses go for upwards of $2 million, if not more. The neighborhood was created to have a small-town feel within a city, so residents have all the convenience that comes with living in a large city like Oakland, but when they go home, everyone knows their neighbors, and no one feels the need to lock their door. The Martins purchased one of the classic Spanish-style homes, and that's where they lived in January of 1964. By this time, they had been married for almost 21 years, and they had two daughters, Carolyn and Susan, who were 18 and 17 years old. 17-year-old Susan was a senior at Oakland High School. She was described by her school administrators as a popular, well-liked girl and a good student. She had just gone back to school after the Christmas holiday for her final semester of high school before graduation. Carolyn was an 18-year-old sophomore at Cal State Chico, about 150 miles away from Oakland. She graduated from Oakland High School in 1962 and went to Oakland City College for one year before transferring to Chico State, where she was working towards a teaching credential. She hoped after graduating she could get a teaching position at a local elementary school. Like her sister, Carolyn was a good student and well-liked by her peers. She was especially active in her high school's drama club, where her former teacher told reporters that she had a knack for comedy when she wasn't working behind the scenes. 
Carolyn had actually been in the local news prior to the news of her murder. Shortly after her high school graduation, she had been part of a group of students who participated in an international trip through the YMCA. She and other Oakland students traveled through 20 countries in Europe over the course of 80 days. This trip even included a stop in the then USSR. Carolyn had driven home from Chico with her boyfriend, whose family was also from the area. They were scheduled to drive back to Chico together on January 30th, and Chico's semester was scheduled to begin the first week of February. In the intervening two decades since their marriage, the Martins went from well-liked newlyweds to highly respected members of their church. Months earlier on Mother's Day, 1963, Betty was awarded Oakland's Mother of the Year Award. She had been nominated by the Oakland Council of United Church Women, and when she won, she and her family were amazed that she was the one selected from all of the candidates. When asked about her parenting style as a mother, she said, One of the hardest things we have to do is keep our hands off our children and let them make their own decisions when they are old enough. It's too easy for parents to want our children to be what we want to be ourselves. Her family was there for her award acceptance from the vice mayor of Oakland and for the photo op. So in January 1964, Frank and Betty were living the life they had always wanted. They had a beautiful home and two kids and even a dog. From the outside, it was a picturesque life to say the least. They should have been preparing for life after their kids left home, maybe dealing with impending empty nest syndrome. Instead, one cold day in late January changed everything. A happy family of four became a grieving family of two in an instant. January 22, 1964 was a Wednesday, and Carolyn was heading into the last few days of her winter break before beginning her spring term. The morning was normal, right down to the cold, crisp air that is standard for East Bay winters. Frank and Susan were up getting ready for their days at the office and at school. Carolyn and Betty were enjoying a more leisurely morning with only one errand on their agenda for later. By 8 a.m., Frank and Susan had left the house in Frank's car. Frank dropped Susan off at Oakland High School before heading into downtown into his office. Betty and Carolyn planned to take the family dog, a Pekingese named TD, to the SPCA for his annual round of shots. The SPCA at the time was near the Oakland International Airport, and the drive from the Martin home to the SPCA was about 14 miles. Depending on traffic, this drive could take anywhere from 20 to 25 minutes. When questioned by law enforcement, the SPCA indicated that they expected Betty there around 9.45. The staff remembered seeing Betty and Carolyn coming in and leaving around 9.55. A receipt in Betty's purse confirmed that they had paid for the shots just before 10 a.m. The next pieces of the timeline were put together by law enforcement based on the estimated time of death. It is believed that Betty and Carolyn started their route home from the SPCA and did not make any stops. Leaving at 9.55 a.m. would put them home around 10.20, and based on the condition the bodies were found in, the time of death was put at around 11 a.m. With this timeline, it is likely that Betty and Carolyn were murdered by someone who was either waiting for them inside the home or someone who came to the home shortly after they returned. At 12 p.m., an exterminator worked on all the exteriors of the house next door to the Martin home. This house shared a yard border with the Martin home. He volunteered to be questioned by police about what he saw that morning, but he didn't see anything out of the ordinary and didn't see anyone go in or out of the house. 
later at 3.30, an 11-year-old boy was walking home, and he walked through the Martin's yard, taking a shortcut to his house. He also did not see anything out of the ordinary in or around the Martin home. 5.30 p.m. is the usual time Susan came home from school after finishing her extracurricular activities. She walked through the door like she did every other day, but when she came into the living room, she found a horrific scene. Her mother and sister were both face down on the living room floor. Their dog, TD, was whimpering near the bodies and refused to move away from them. Both had been posed in an odd way with their legs hogtied. Carolyn had a silk stocking tied around her big toe on her right foot and around her neck. This was holding her foot up in the air, bent at the knee. Betty was posed similarly, however, her hands were bound with an electrical cord, and the same cord was used to tie her toe and her neck. The cord appeared to have been ripped from the wall from a nearby lamp. The couch was shoved off kilter and suggested that there had been a struggle. That theory was backed up by Betty's hands being bound when Carolyn's weren't. Both women showed signs of physical assault. A marble ashtray laid near Betty's body, and she had a serious but not fatal head wound. It is believed that the hit would have knocked her unconscious. Carolyn showed signs of being punched multiple times in the face, and both women had been strangled. None of Betty's clothing had been removed except for her right shoe. Carolyn's shirt and pants had both been removed, and there was evidence of a sexual assault. Susan, in a panic, called the operator. When they answered, she pleaded for them to send help, saying, I think my mom and my sister are dead. The call to police was recorded at 5.35 p.m., right around the time Susan was usually expected to be home from school, a cruel detail that reminds us just how normal this day was until it wasn't. At 6 p.m., Frank Martin turned onto his street to find his house swarmed with police officers and onlookers from the neighborhood. As he waded his way through the chaos, he found Susan talking to a police officer. Officers escorted them both into a police car and then to a neighbor's home, where Susan recounted what happened. Police immediately put all their available resources on the Martin murders, and immediately 24 detectives were assigned to the case. Oakland Police Department released their version of what they believed happened and urged anyone with any information to come forward. First, there was no forced entry. However, Crocker Heights had such a safe, small-town reputation that oftentimes doors weren't locked in the first place. Walking into a house in that neighborhood was not likely to be difficult. This led police to believe that the perpetrator watched the Martins' morning routine and knew the basics of their day-to-day and had an idea of when the house would be empty. Second was the state of the bodies. Carolyn was bound with a silk stocking, which suggested to detectives that this action was part of the perpetrator's original plan. They believed that the killer was hiding in the living room and attacked Carolyn. Betty had set her purse down on the kitchen counter at some point. Investigators found it in the kitchen, undisturbed, with a wallet still full of cash. Detectives believed that Betty heard a commotion in the living room and rushed to the source of the noise. It is then that they believe a struggle took place, and Betty was hit in the head with the marble ashtray, which based on the severity of the wound, they believed knocked her out. Her hands were then bound with the electrical cord that was yanked out of the nearby outlet. Investigators hypothesized that Caroline may have died first. After she was strangled and sexually assaulted, she was posed with the silk stocking. Although Betty had a serious head wound, her cause of death was strangulation. The killer used the rest of the length of the extension cord to tie Betty's foot in a similar manner. After that, the killer slipped out of the house and left. Whoever they were, they were not noticed by anyone in the neighborhood, 
So they were either lucky enough to not be seen, or they fit in so well that they didn't stick out to anyone. The killer left semen and blood evidence at the scene, but DNA testing was still decades away at this time. While detectives searched for answers, Crocker Heights was in a panic. The residents felt like a crime of this magnitude didn't happen in this part of town, and all the neighbors felt like it could have easily happened to them. The local animal shelters ran out of large dogs, and residents were putting double locks on all their doors. Before the murders, it was common to see people out for strolls on the winding roads, but in the aftermath, people were barely outside during the day, and the streets were deserted in the evening. Women in the area were particularly afraid, and police saw an increase in reports of possible intruders in their homes. Thankfully, most of the time, there was no intruder. One call received by police led them to a house in the nearby town of Richmond, where a teenage son awoke to find his mother hysterical on the staircase. She had scratches on her arm, and he believed that she had been attacked. When she was able to calm down, it was determined that she had such a vivid nightmare that when she woke up, she wasn't sure if she was awake or still asleep. She had been dreaming that a masked man had broken into her home and tied her up similarly to Betty and Carolyn. Susan and Frank did their best to work through their grief. Frank was actually back at work just a day after the murders. And when asked about his decision to return to the office, he said, what else is there to do? At least there are a lot of patients to keep me busy. Betty and Carolyn's funerals were held at the end of January. Hundreds of people turned out to pay their respects to the women. As people were filing out of the church at the end of the service, an elderly man fell ill and collapsed. Despite just eulogizing his wife and daughter, Frank was the first to come to the man's aid and waited until he could see him off in an ambulance. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The investigation was wide in scope from the beginning. The Martins had no known enemies, so there were no leads on any immediate possible suspects. One notable thing the investigation uncovered was that in June of 1963, just seven months before the murders, the Martin home was burglarized. Nothing of value was taken from the home. The only things that were missing were women's underwear, pantyhose, and nightgowns. This was particularly interesting to investigators because Carolyn was bound with pantyhose. After this, the Oakland Tribune put up a $1,000 reward for any information leading to arrest in the murders. This was in addition to the reward being offered by law enforcement. Police compiled lists of hundreds of known registered sex offenders in the area. 
They also traveled to Chico State to question friends and classmates of Carolyn. The church congregation was also interviewed, as well as any friends or family or people known by the Martins. Everyone seemed eager to talk to police. Many came forward willingly to discuss what they knew, which again didn't produce very many leads. The Martin family appeared to get along with everyone. A couple of people were taken to the station to be formally questioned by police. One submitted to a lie detector test, but passed and was released. In all, over 3,000 people were questioned or interviewed in relation to the murders. On January 24th, just two days after the murders, it hit the press that investigators from Boston were flying into Oakland to meet with the investigators of the Martin case. From June 1962 to January 1964, 13 women in Boston were sexually assaulted and strangled. The women were found in their apartments, and there was no sign of forced entry. Many of them were strangled with nylon stockings. Police believed that the killings were committed by one man. They believed whoever was responsible was friendly enough that the women were willing to let them into their homes, even when they were alone. So not only would he need to be friendly, he was probably fairly well put together, like a maintenance man or a delivery man. In 1963, after some 10 murders, a four-part series on the murders was released by two investigative reporters. They dubbed the murders the work of the Boston Strangler, and that name is still used today. On January 4, 1964, 19-year-old Mary Sullivan was found raped and strangled with nylon stockings in her apartment in Boston. This was just weeks after a similar crime occurred in November of 1963. So when Oakland announced that they had a strangulation homicide on their hands involving stockings on January 22, 1964, officials on the Boston Strangler Task Force wanted to get on the ground in Oakland as fast as possible. Boston officials came prepared to compare evidence at the Martin crime scene with evidence they had collected from various crime scenes in Boston. One major difference between the Martin crime scene and all the Boston crime scenes was that none of the victims in Boston had been hogtied. So while stockings was a commonality, that was pretty much where the similarities ended. With no viable links between the two cases, the Boston team went home. In October 1964, another woman was sexually assaulted in Boston, but this time the assailant apologized to the woman and left. She was later able to pick his photo out of a lineup, and police arrested 31-year-old Albert DeSalvo. He was charged with rape, and he confessed to committing the murders associated with the Boston Strangler. He pled guilty in exchange for having the death penalty taken off the table in 1967. DeSalvo was later stabbed to death while in prison in 1973. In the years since DeSalvo's trial, his culpability in the stranglings has been called into question. Mainly, some believe that more than one person is responsible for the murders attributed to the Boston Strangler. This is because the victims vary in age and come from a variety of different backgrounds. Also, the MO in the murders is inconsistent. It is interesting how Betty and Carolyn's murder briefly intersected with the Boston Strangler case, especially when you consider how the disparities in news coverage have lasted over time. One case is so well known, and the other one is not often covered outside of local news. Police explored a possible connection to a missing woman from a nearby town who disappeared in October of 1963. Judith Williamson was an 18-year-old college student who had just started her sophomore year at UC Berkeley. She lived with her parents in the neighboring town of Albany, and she graduated from Albany High School in 1962, the same year as Carolyn Martin. 
On October 29, 1963, she walked out of her door at 7 a.m. to catch the bus to school, as she did every morning, but she never made it. A witness saw her walking from her house towards her bus stop, but her regular bus driver said that she did not get on that day. A witness did see her walking with a man in a white convertible crawling on the curb beside her. Later, a witness reported seeing what they believed was a couple in a white convertible fighting on Fish Ranch Road. Fish Ranch Road is a road that takes you behind UC Berkeley's campus, which is where Judith was headed that day. Later that day, an 11-year-old boy found an umbrella in a shopping center in Albany. There was a monogram tag sewn into the umbrella with the name Judy Williamson. Judith's parents identified the umbrella as belonging to her. It was missing a handle, and it appeared to have been run over by a car. There was no sign of her book bag, her purse, or any of her other belongings. Judith's parents were devastated to lose their daughter, and it was completely out of character for her to run away and not contact her family. But her dad said he held out hope that perhaps she suffered what he called a mental blackout and had gotten lost and just not made her way back home. A possible connection was drawn between Judith and Carolyn because they were the same age and lived just a few miles apart. They graduated high school in the same year, so police looked for someone who may have known both women to interview as a potential suspect. In April of 1966, two and a half years after her disappearance, authorities in San Mateo County found skeletonized human remains in the Santa Cruz Mountains. They were quickly identified as belonging to Judith. A suspect was immediately named and apprehended. He had been arrested for two other murders of local women, but he was eventually ruled out in Judas' murder. After that suspect was released, her case went cold. Then, 14 years after her disappearance, a man walked into the Albany police station and confessed to kidnapping and murdering Judith in 1963. He had been in her class at Albany High School, and at the time, he owned a white convertible. He said he saw her walking down the street and pulled over to offer her a ride. He provided no motive for the murder. Police determined that his confession was credible, and he was arrested. While Judith's case was solved, it was determined that this man had no connection to Betty or Carolyn Martin. Despite the amount of effort put into connecting the Martin case to the Boston Strangler, the lead did not pan out. Neither did the potential connection to Judith Williamson. After these leads dried up, investigators working on Betty and Carolyn's murders weren't left with much to go on. By April of 1964, police had officially hit a dead end in the investigation. No movement in the investigation was made, and in January of 1967, on the three-year anniversary of the murders, the Oakland Tribune, who had covered the case so extensively, published a short op-ed that placed blame squarely on the sheriff's department and the district attorney's office. The op-ed claimed that bad relations between the two offices hindered the investigation and rendered an otherwise solvable case to the cold case department. And the op-ed claimed that Betty and Carolyn's murders weren't the only case affected by bad blood between the agencies. The op-ed reads, Three years ago this month, the terrible murders of Betty and Carolyn Martin were committed in Oakland and remain unsolved. Is it because of the police? The Tribune's reward posted at the time of $1,000 is still unclaimed. 
Also unsolved was the murder a year to the day later of Dr. David Hackett, the UC Berkeley biochemist whose body was found in the Arinda Hills. The case dwindled to a standstill after bickering between the district attorney and the sheriff. Also unsolved is the slaying of Arinda's Tom Snow, also in Contra Costa County, all of which I mention because, boy, you sure do get a ticket if you park 10 minutes over time. Dr. David Powell Hackett was a well-respected biochemist who taught at UC Berkeley. As a professor, he was beloved by his students for being both effective and engaging. Dr. Hackett was considered to be the top in his field and was admired by his colleagues as well, with one of them saying that he was the best teacher they had in their department. In 1965, he was 39 years old, married with four children ranging in age from an infant to 17 years old. His family lived in Arenda, a bedroom community just on the east side of the Berkeley and Oakland Hills. On January 21, 1965, Dr. Hackett was expected home in the evening for dinner with his family. When he didn't come home on time, his wife grew afraid that he might have been in an accident on his route home. Dr. Hackett usually took Fish Ranch Road to head east and wind up in the hills behind UC Berkeley into Arinda. It wasn't unheard of for Dr. Hackett to work late, but he would usually call to let his family know. Once hours had passed since dinner and there was no sign of him, his wife called the police. Shortly after midnight, miles away from the university and from his home, two highway patrol officers came across the body of Dr. Hackett. He had been shot twice and hit in the head, and his wallet and his car were both gone. His body was found along an isolated road some 12 miles east of his home. Shortly after his murder, a student who lived near the hall where Dr. Hackett taught was arrested. He owned a gun similar to the one that was used to kill Dr. Hackett, and then Dr. Hackett's car was located in a parking lot near the student's apartment. The student was also noted to have been behaving bizarrely in the days after the murder. But despite this evidence, the motive wasn't clear. He was one of dozens of students in Dr. Hackett's lecture, but they did not interact much beyond being in class. It is notable that the murder did occur the night before Dr. Hackett's final exam, and this student was in danger of failing the class. Despite a lengthy investigation and some good leads, the case did not go to trial. The student was released just days after being arrested, and investigators continued to try and build their case, but that was to no avail. Forty years after the murder, the long-retired DA was quoted saying, We know who did it, we just could never prove it. It has been nearly 55 years since Dr. Hackett's murder, and no one has served prison time for the crime. In 1965, 54-year-old restaurant owner Tom Snow was found dead along an isolated stretch of highway in Contra Costa County. Tom was found by two patrolmen who came across what they thought was an abandoned car with the headlights on. The car was still running, but the doors were closed. Tom's body was found outside the car on the ground. Police found him at 2.30 a.m., and when they found him, he was still alive. He was transferred to the hospital and pronounced dead shortly after arrival at 3 a.m. The scene was odd. 
Tom had been shot twice in the head and the gun had been left in the crook of his arm. Police investigated the death as a homicide, believing that the perpetrator tried to stage the scene as a suicide. They believed that because Tom was right-handed but was shot from the left that he did not kill himself. Police found leftover food and an oil painting in the back seat of the car. He also had a wallet with $60 in cash on him. Employees working the night of Tom's death said that he was at the restaurant before leaving late with plans to head straight home. They also said that he had dinner at the restaurant with a man in a suit and that they did not recognize him. As best I could tell through the research, the leads quickly dried up and to this day, no one has been apprehended for the murder. I mention these two cases from the op-ed because of the commonality they have with Betty and Carolyn's murder. Investigators in all of the cases were accused by the author of not doing enough to bring the guilty parties to justice. Not only that, the biggest obstacle was allegedly due to infighting between government agencies. I couldn't find much about the actual investigations, but it did seem like if leads dried up or if investigations hit a wall, then the investigations ended, even if there were viable suspects. It was difficult to read that there was a good suspect in Dr. Hackett's murder who wasn't brought to justice due to issues with the investigation. We will unfortunately see the same thing with Betty and Carolyn's investigation. In the wake of the Martin murders and through the 1970s, reporters periodically put out articles highlighting the growing number of unsolved murders in the Bay Area and questioned why they went unsolved for so long. The victims ranged wildly in age and socioeconomic status. Some were children, some were housewives, college students, and even the wife of a police sergeant in a small East Bay town. But were these cases unsolved because of issues between the district attorney and law enforcement like the op-ed suggests? It is alleged so in some instances. I personally am not sure, but it is unfortunate that a pattern like this exists. In all of these older cases, the parents and spouses of the victims are more than likely deceased. Some may have children, like Tom Snow and Dr. Hackett, but today they would be older, having far surpassed their murdered parent in age. In 2005, the East Bay Times published an article revisiting Betty and Carolyn's murder. It included an interview with Jack Richardson, who was one of four detectives that worked this case and only this case full-time. By this time, Jack Richardson was over 80 years old and had been long retired from the Oakland Police Department. He told the paper that out of the thousands interviewed, every single interview led to a dead end, with the exception of one person. There was a student who attended UC Berkeley, and he was around Carolyn's age, and it was determined that he knew her. He was interviewed as part of a routine questioning, and he was someone who was not on their radar as a potential suspect. In all the documents and articles that I've looked through, I have not found his name used anywhere. Detective Richardson said that the student said things during their interview that led them to believe that he had knowledge of the crime. Their interview turned into an interrogation until the suspect's father and attorneys showed up to the police station. They demanded that he be charged or released immediately. Detective Richardson went undercover as a UC Berkeley student and sat in classes with the suspect, hoping he would say something incriminating to his friends. 
That didn't end up panning out because Detective Richardson followed him for a week and found that he was a total loner that really didn't talk to anyone. Richardson's bosses didn't think that there was enough evidence against the student-turned-suspect. DNA testing didn't exist, and the student now had a team of lawyers ready to defend him against any charges. Word came from the top, and Detective Richardson had to stand down. They were left to wait for someone to come forward with more information or for the suspect's guilty conscience to get the better of him. In 1979, there was a surprise lead in the case when a man claimed to police that he had information about the killings. A short investigation revealed that the man was lying and had never met any of the Martin family, so again, the case went cold. As of a 2014 article revisiting the case, the UC Berkeley student and the only viable suspect was believed to be deceased. Frank Martin lived in the house for many years after the murders. He was interviewed in 1983, saying, They've had a suspect this whole time. They know who did it. Whether or not they have a culprit, it doesn't matter to me because the damage has already been done. Frank Martin passed away in 1991, 27 years after the murders. Susan chose not to participate in interviews or follow-up articles concerning the murders. Jack Richardson, one of the lead investigators in Betty and Carolyn's case, died in 2008. The case remains open, and there is a $20,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on the episode and more information about misconduct, like social media links and a link to Misconduct's online merchandise store. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month level or higher, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you so much to all of our existing Patreon supporters. Your help makes the show possible. Thanks again for listening. If you have a second, head on over to our Facebook page or Instagram and let us know what you thought about this episode. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. And if you have a case you would like to see covered, drop us a line, send it over to misconductpodcast at gmail.com, and see you next time.